Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we're doing something very special on this episode. We are paying tribute to a dear friend, especially a dear friend of yours, who recently passed away. His name was Mike Rose. Our most devoted listeners may recall him from an episode that we did way back when called The Skills Gap. And Jack, I know that there was just an outpouring of sorrow and tribute after Mike passed away, but I'm wondering if you can just tell listeners who don't know who Mike was a little bit about him. Yeah. Uh, So Mike grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, One of the reasons why I was so drawn to him is that his story is not entirely different from mine, other than the fact that, you know, we were born in different eras. Although I think our fathers were actually born in similar eras. My father was quite old when I was born. Um, Mike grew up uh, in, you know, a very working class part of Los Angeles. Uh, You know, he grew up in Watts back when Watts was full of Italian immigrants. Um, They had actually moved to Los Angeles, moved to California. Um, And uh, Mike's initial experience in school was different than mine. I actually liked school. I was a nerd from the start. Um, But uh, Mike's initial experience in school was that it wasn't a great fit for him. It wasn't a great match. And actually, via a mistaken identity case, uh, he was tracked uh, out of the academic program and into a voc ed program as it was then known and it was only through the intervention of a teacher who saw something in him that Mike got sort of realigned with uh, you know a, a more academically oriented curriculum and really discovered his interests there uh, and ended up uh, becoming a professor at UCLA uh, he ended up living in fact uh, about a block from where I grew up and was uh, a beloved presence at the galley, uh, which if you want to pay tribute to Mike, uh, next time you're out in Los Angeles, go to Santa Monica and uh, go to the galley and say that uh, you want the Mike Rose special and see what happens there. So, Jack, we actually have some audio of Mike telling that story about being confused with another Mike Rose in high school, and uh, I'm going to play it now. But I just wanted to thank you for sharing the the audio with me because uh, I had never listened to On Being with Krista Tippett, and I will never be the same. You know, I didn't do so well in school. I, I could read, which was really fortunate since that's the sort of meta tool, right? right, so, right. so I could read, and that was immensely helpful. But I was horrible in mathematics. I couldn't diagram a sentence if you held a gun to my head. I just didn't do that well in school. And so then when I went to high school, uh, I ended up in the vocational track. Those were in the days when, when schools were, were pretty rigidly tracked, right? And yeah. Then a remarkable thing happened. <laughs> Somebody found out that somewhere along the line, my entrance tests to high school got confused with somebody else whose last name was Rose. Uh-huh. And so 
suddenly in my junior year, I find myself in this college preparatory track. <laughs> and I was as ill-prepared for that as I was for playing the defensive tackle on the football team. Right. You know, I, I was so in the deep end of the pool. And so I drifted through all that. And in my senior year, had the sheer, dumb, good luck of getting an English teacher who himself had just left Columbia uh, University and came out west and wanted to teach for a few years. And that was Jack McFarland, right? And that was Mm -hmm. Jack McFarland. And so suddenly, after all those years of sort of drifting around and not knowing what was up, we hit this guy who is giving us every other week a new book to read, starting with Homer, (laughs) and working his way down to Hemingway. And for some reason, some complex set of reasons, it caught my fancy. The guy just caught me. Jack, you mentioned that part of what drew you to Mike was that your stories were kind of similar. And I think listeners are probably wondering what you're talking about. We don't really know that much about Jack Schneider. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a mystery. Uh, I will remain so chiefly other than to say that, you know, I think that there are people who uh, immediately see our institutions as working for them and belonging to them. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy, so in many ways uh, I experience that all over our society. Um, but I did not grow up in uh, a middle-class or affluent family, uh, and that shaped how I thought about school, how I approached education. There were lots of things that I just didn't know about how the system worked, and I certainly didn't feel like... Um, it had been built for me. It took a lot of effort on my part, sort of ramming myself back up against the system. I just felt like I didn't quite know how the system worked, particularly in its upper reaches, and uh, was pretty sure that it hadn't been designed for me. And one of the things that I so appreciated about Mike is that, in his view, I was entirely wrong about that. Uh, that it actually was for me, that it was for all of us, and that while there may be some barriers that needed to be addressed, well, you know, there certainly was uh, an insufficient flow of information to you know all of us uh, that those of us who wanted to be there uh, belonged, that those of us who had questions were welcome, that those of us who had half-formed ideas were exactly the right people to you know, be a part of the intellectual tradition. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, uh, Mike was one of the people telling me, before he and I ever met each other, um, that I belonged and that I was a part of this story. And he said that to so many people, uh, both in his research and in his teaching. And, uh, you know, it made an incredible difference for people. I want to share a bit more from that interview that Mike did with Krista Tippett. Here he is talking about one of the questions that animated so much of his work. How do people fall in love with learning? And why do we assume that only certain kinds of students have that experience? When you talk to people about their memories of school, memories of teachers, certainly you'll get some bad memories and awful teachers and that sort of thing. That's that's to be expected. But when people talk about either falling in love with a discipline, 
uh, falling in love with a subject matter, or a teacher who made a difference. Uh, it's interesting how often they'll remember a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll remember something that they read or something that somebody said or something someone did for them. Those moments are powerful. Uh, And I think they live on in memory for a reason because they help shape who we are and where we go. There's those moments, as you put it, of, of possibility. And you're right. I mean, I've been really fortunate to be close by as those moments erupt. And I guess the point I want to make about those moments and quote-unquote remedial or basic skills education or students who haven't done so well in school is, again, this is another unfortunate binary that we fall into. I think a lot of folks would just assume automatically that those moments happen all the time with kids who have good educations and you know mm-hmm. go to good schools and have good teachers. They also happen all the time and are always at the ready with folks who are even coming in with the most basic of skills and the the longest way to go. It happens if you can create the right kinds of environments for them. So, Jack, I don't know if you remember, but after the news broke about Mike, not that much time had gone by when I sent you one of my emails, as I am prone to do, and I said, we should really do an episode about this. That's not how I remember it. Uh, I remember thinking that this was my idea, but I, that that would be very typical male behavior. Uh, I think maybe maybe uh, the best case scenario is that great minds think alike, and we both had the same idea. And the thing is that if Mike Rose were here, like he would totally let me say oh, that yeah. the idea oh, was mine. Oh, he'd rip me to shreds. Absolutely, <laughs> totally. So anyway, as you were thinking about putting an episode together, you knew immediately that you wanted to bring in people who'd had that same close connection with Mike and his work. And so I just wondered, you know, I I usually do a lot of the legwork of putting our episodes together. And I want to hear you talk a little bit about how you decided to put this one together. Uh, well, first, a uh, little self-pity. It was hard. It took a lot of time. So I, of course, always appreciate you, Jennifer, but I was particularly appreciating you as I was scheduling all of these interviews and taking notes and thinking about how it would all fit together. Um, I am really grateful that I'm going to be able to return to my role as a talking head uh, in future episodes. But uh, as I was thinking about who to reach out to and what to ask them, you know, I think top of mind for me was capturing Mike's humanity, um, that he was such a humane scholar and such a humane teacher. And of course, that came out in these interviews. Um, you know, his students felt seen by Mike. And uh, one of the things that I think is particularly amazing about his research is that people feel seen in his research. And they're often people uh, who don't feel seen in traditional approaches to research. You know, I'm thinking about some of his really moving work in terms of capturing what's going on in classrooms, um, being attuned to the magic that uh, unfolds in lots of classrooms that don't get uh, praise heaped on them for you know improving student standardized test scores or uh, for you know uh, 
getting all of the students to snap on command, um, that he was really attuned to something different, right? Uh, lights coming on for kids, um, interests being sparked for young people, um, educators who had embraced their students in, uh, in a kind of world of care, uh, and that was something that I know Mike experienced himself as a student. It's something that he wanted to do as a teacher and I think did so well, um, both in formal teaching and in informal teaching. Uh, certainly, you know, I was never a student of his in the classroom, um, but I felt Mike's care uh, in the relationship that I had with him. And, you know, again, it's something that really comes across in his research that uh, he is attuned to that same sense of care in other people and that same sense of humanity in other people. And the way he writes about schools as a result, I think is just so moving. As you are about to hear, Jack was not alone in feeling that kind of connection to Mike and his work. Erica Kitzmiller is an assistant professor of education at Barnard College. She's an historian of race, inequality, and education, and she remembers exactly when she first encountered Mike's writing. It was 2004, and she was a first-year graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania and was taking a history of education course with Michael Katz. My mother was a waitress and a bartender for most of her early career. And I thought it was very cool that she always knew what was in every drink. Um, she could tell you what was in any bar menu, what kind of alcohol, what she would recommend. And I always thought that was super cool that my mom could do that. But Mike Rose showed me that what my mom was doing and what so many people do every day in the world is pretty remarkable in terms of cognitive intellectual abilities. And to me, that was super, super cool. And I never looked at a waitress or a steel worker, which is what my dad did ever again in the same way. I think Mike Rose's writing shows us the humanity of people and all of their myriad complications and beauty. His writing is visceral. You want it more all the time. I read his blog religiously. After I read The Mind at Work in Michael Katz's course, I devoured everything. I read Possible Lives. I read Lives on the Boundary. Um, and I did that on my own in graduate school because no one was assigning his work in my courses. Mike's writing spoke to Erica, and she felt like in an important way, his story was her story. As a kid growing up in rural America, no one ever looked like me. Um, I felt like all the scholars I read about went to fancy schools, you know, went to fancy colleges, and I did all those things. <laughs> but I was at heart like a kid from Pennsylvania, and my mom was an Italian immigrant. So Mike Rose was like my person. <laughs> and so in this weird way, like, if he could do it, I could do it. And I mean that totally sincerely. I never spoke with him. I spoke with him via Michael Katz, which felt like super cool. Like, I got this email about my insights and perspectives and how important they were. And like having Mike Rose say that to me was huge. I think in my scholarship, Mike Rose forced me and he really did force me to see both the promises and pitfalls of public education and to listen intently to the stories and hardships that people have and to try to represent them as truly as I possibly can, which I don't know if I achieved, but he was my inspiration for that. So Jack, one of the things that just 
amazed me about listening to Erica just then was that she never actually met Mike. And I think that a lot of people felt that way about him, including me, right? My only relationship with him was over the phone, first interviewing him, then interviewing him again because he was (laughs) unhappy with how he had come across in the first interview. Total perfectionist. Yes, which I very much appreciated. And then we started having this phone relationship where he would call me up for to talk as one writer to another. And what was really amazing about it was that he was at a point in his publishing career where I get the sense that people were sort of t- treating him as a has-been, telling him that, you know, dude, you got to be online. You got to be on Twitter. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we would talk and he would tell me about all the ways that he interacted with his students already. And it made the claim that somehow he was washed up just seem so ludicrous. But I think part of the reason that people did have their reaction to his passing that they did is that we all really felt like we knew him, even if we'd never met him. Yeah, I think what you're putting your finger on there, Jennifer, isn't just Mike's interpersonal skill. It's also the sense of humility with which he approached his work, and which I think was so powerful, not just as a research tool, right? Because Mike doesn't Uh, assume that he knows what's going on in classrooms. He doesn't dismiss particular kinds of practices uh, that don't align with whatever his presuppositions of good teaching are. Um, But it also is a core element of his teaching um, because he always engaged as a co-inquirer with his students. He made his students feel like equals. And, you know, that was something that I appreciated. Even as an established scholar, you know, I felt like Mike was my senior in a number of ways. Um, But we would talk on the phone and he would just act like totally amazed, right? Like I was blowing his mind with the insights uh, or, you know, what I think passes for an insight uh, that I was sharing about whatever the topic was. I remember this summer we were having a conversation about Horace Mann and the ideal of the common school. And because of course, who doesn't just have those summertime conversations? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, gin and tonic in hand and, you know, a cool ocean breeze and a deep dive into the origins of America's public school system. Yeah, he was just genuinely interested. He was a truly curious person, and he recognized that he actually did have something to learn from everybody, even though he also had something to share. Uh, And so, you know, this is one of the questions that I put to some of his former students, um, just asking them to talk a little bit about the ways in which he brought them into these kinds of conversations. Well, it's time to meet one of those former students now. Michael Moses first encountered Mike Rose as a grad student in education at UCLA, where he got a PhD. His work focuses on the experiences of students of color and the racialized limitations of qualitative methods and academic writing practice. He's just starting his academic career. He's currently a postdoc at University of California, Riverside. And In many ways, Mike Rose showed him the kind of academic that he wants to be. This idea of you're in it, it stands out to me so much because Mike was always in it. Mike was always like not only in the present moment with folks, but he was always doing the work. I think some colleagues may get to a certain point and they stop producing or they stop learning or they stop being curious 
are they stop responding to their students' needs when their students are saying, hey, doc, you know, my pronouns are important. I wish you would get them right sometimes, right? Mike was always in the process of learning, not only for, you know, himself as, as like a, as a nerd, but for the, for the betterment of the community that he was creating around him. Michael says that at key moments, he often finds himself asking, what would Mike Rose do? And that he usually knows the answer. Yes, Mike was my senior. Mike was my mentor. But in all of my interactions with him, even when I was like in his class, there was something about him being present and him being in it with us that literally felt like I was having a conversation with an equal. I was having a conversation with a friend. I was having a conversation with a colleague. And I don't say that cheaply because I think many of us use the language of friend and colleague and fairy and pedagogy to equalize relations or what have you. Still to this day, you know, what was it? The late 90s, early 2000s, people would run around with the bracelet saying like, what would Jesus do? Still to this day, when big decisions come up, when different writing projects come up for me, you know, what would Mike do? Or what would Mike say comes up in my mind? And it's not a... Um, I have to sort of please him sort of question or, you know, I have to do it how he would do a sort of question. But it's like, yo, that was my brother. And I really appreciated his insight because when we interacted, he saw me and I saw him. And that ultimately, like regardless of, you know, power structures and stuff in the classroom, like there, there is going to be an authority. There is going to be students. I understand that. But he worked very, very hard, not only consciously, but I just think also in who he was to literally equalize relations and to just bring it down for all of us to play and for all of us to think and for all of us to build. Janelle Scott was also a grad student of Mike's, but she knew him as a writer and a scholar before he was her teacher. She found him through one of his books, Not Lives on the Boundary, his best-known book about his struggles with literacy and the stories of the students he'd mentored over 20 years, but Possible Lives, his chronicle of teachers and classrooms he'd visited all over the country. I came to him through Possible Lives. And for me, that book, first of all, is incredible, but it holds up because of the underlying argument that I think is core across all of his scholarship is that there's this very strong belief in um, democracy, in the role of public education as a foundation in advancing that very imperfect democracy and a real frustration and even anger with people who would dare to restrict that possibility. And Mike and I talked a lot about this because I those parts of Possible Lives, where he's expressing that anger, particularly in the conclusion, I say, I think people don't realize how mad you are, <laughs> right? You're really mad about the people who would dare to tell a child or a school or a teacher or a project like public education, yeah, we're done. I think we've taken this as far as we can. He was deeply impatient with that impetus, with those the values that would undergird that impetus. And I think the body of his scholarship serves to reject that impulse. Janelle is now a professor of education at UC Berkeley, where she holds the Robert J. and Mary Catherine Bergino Distinguished Chair in Educational Disparities. In other words, she's kind of a big shot. But she was once a struggling dissertation writer advised by Mike Rose. And Janelle says that more than anything, Mike helped her to understand the purpose of the work she was doing. 
he really believed that nobody was expendable and that everybody had something to offer and that he was almost like an archaeologist trying to excavate <laughs> with you what that was. What do you And so it didn't matter if it wasn't polished. It didn't scare him. He saw the potential no matter how ugly it was wrapped. I think one example that was just such a breakthrough moment for me came when I was really stumbling while I was writing my dissertation. I just both being kind of a bratty, self-involved doctoral student where I just decided it was useless and who even cares about this anyway? And it's just going to sit on a shelf. And what I really want to do is make a documentary. I want to give this up. Because really what this dissertation should be is a documentary, right? I've done this, these really deep, rich case studies of private management of charter schools and all the politics. And I'm like, these are dramas here. And I'm gonna, I'm not gonna write the dissertation anymore. Like I this is what I told him. And he said, okay, that sounds promising. What if we do this? What if we take your dissertation and make it the narration for your documentary? Right. And he's like, you know, think about all the documentaries you love. Like, what's your favorite documentary? So I talked about Eyes on the Prize. And he said, there's a narrator, as I recall, pretty powerful narrator there telling the story, moving the drama along. What if we think about your dissertation that way? And I was like, yeah, I'll write that. <laughs> well, listening to people who actually had a chance to not just know him in person, but to study with him, I felt really jealous, right? That you hear them talking about what it was like to go into his office. And I think one thing that comes through in such clear strokes is that Mike's own unlikely education journey really had such an impact on the way that he related to his students. Again, it's clear from both his research and his teaching that Mike really understood the relational aspect of education. He understood how important it was to gain trust, to show care, um, to build a solid foundation of, um, you know, a sense of equality there between teacher and students so that real learning could occur. It's something that he experienced in his own education uh, where a teacher saw something in him and brought him into the fold, so to speak. And Mike knew that there was something in everybody uh, that made them worthy of membership in an intellectual community. And that's something that he wrote about. Uh, He wrote about the power of opening doors for people Um, and of turning on lights for people. And this is something that his students uh, experienced and talked about in the interviews that I was doing with them. One thing that comes across really clearly if you talk with people who knew Mike well, either as a person or as a teacher or as a scholar, and of course knowing him one way often meant knowing him in all three ways, uh, is how profound his respect for democracy was. And I mean that in the broadest sense, right? Not in a just sort of narrowly political sense that Mike saw everybody as belonging to a community of equals, a community of inquirers who all had equal standing in a kind of metaphorical conversation, even if they were prepared in different ways to have that conversation, even if some people uh, didn't recognize their own inherent rights to it, right? That he was really committed to this idea of uh, us all being in this process together, 
Um, it's, you know, something that, uh, you know, a theorist might call world building, um, right? That Mike was engaged in a process of democratic world building and trying to convince people that they had this sort of equal standing there, that they had an equal membership and that it was just theirs to claim. Chris Buttimer found his way to Mike Rose almost by accident. He was in a teacher prep program at UMass Boston after changing careers when he happened to pick up a copy of Lives on the Boundary. I almost didn't pick it up. It was not assigned to us in any class that I took. I took this amazing course with two professors from the Writing Project who uh, adjuncted at UMass Boston, and it was an elective. I didn't even have to take the course where they took us through process writing. So we were actually doing our own writing, brainstorming and developing, a, picking an idea that we really wanted to flesh out and, and drafting and getting peer feedback. And then we put it together in an anthology, like all the same things that Mike said he was doing with his students. And they just, we also had to keep a reading notebook and write reflections to what we were, were we were reading. And I just, there were like 50 books on the desk that we could pick from. And I picked up Mike's book and just got lucky that that was the, that was the book. And it was just the absolute right book at the right time for the right person. And again, I think it's going to stay with me for the, for the rest of my career. I'm going to teach it to, uh, you know, a new generation of folks who are kind of, kind of like me and wanted to get into teaching and maybe some career switchers. Um, I just think it speaks to, to so many people, which is the real, the real beauty in the book. Chris says that in many ways, Mike's book ended up shaping the teacher he has become, in part because he saw himself in Mike's own story. Chris wasn't a student who fell through the cracks. He was a kid who skated through school, earning good grades with little effort. In fact, he still remembers how stunned he was when some college friends talked about being unable to put down Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. You mean you read a book for fun? It wasn't until he was back in school in his late 20s that his own love of learning would finally ignite. But even then, he was holding on to a notion of what it meant to be smart, that Mike's book would disrupt for good. I bought into the belief that teachers just went up there, they wrote things on the board, and they lectured at me. I took copious notes, I regurgitated it back to them. I never had an original thought in my idea, but I got uh, in my head, but I got straight A's because of it. And the kids who got the C's and the D's and the F's, who, by the way, were my like best friends. I didn't actually hang out with the, the quote unquote smart kids or the popular kids or so on and so forth. But, you know, I just, they didn't try, right? They just weren't working hard enough. And if not for Mike's book, I think I would have gone into teaching in the Cambridge Public Schools thinking the same thing. You know, C students just aren't very smart and the F students just aren't even trying, right? Or it's their families or it's the communities or the lack of all the all the racist classes, deficit-based views. And Mike allowed me to see, you know, my students. And again, I was far from perfect in being responsive to my students in the way that I, that I should have. But without Mike's book, I don't think I, I do that. We've heard from Mike in this episode, and we've heard a lot about him, but we haven't heard what he sounded like on the page. And uh, I think that's probably how he had the most profound impact because he reached so many people that way. Um, there's a paragraph of his that is kind of seared into my memory, um, and I can 
dig it up quickly because I keep it handy. Uh, but it's from uh, an essay that later appeared in his book, Why School? And it's this really fabulous piece called Finding Our Way. And the first line of it is so typical Mike Rose, where he says, a good education helps us make sense of the world and find our way in it. Uh, if you could distill his philosophy about education and, and what a good school does into a single sentence, I think that would be it. But okay, I've got it up here. And I, you know, I, I'm just going to read it. Um, because I think it's so fantastic. Um, he has just written about this teacher's classroom uh, where students are engaging in a sort of learning in a hands-on way. They're doing stuff with crabs. Uh, and you know there's 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 no you know um, lesson plan tied to uh, curricular standards. Uh, you know the teacher isn't getting them to slant uh, or you know any other acronym. unless it's Maryland and there's a state crab standard. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, he then steps back at the end and says, Schooling like this is a powerful thing to witness and a powerful thing to go through. Over time, you see, you feel something. It's the experience of democracy itself, the free play of inquiry, the affirmation of human ability, the young person guided to the magnifying lens, the map, the notepad, the book. And that just, like, every time I read that, it just, like... It's hard to describe. I want to cry. I also like am inspired. I want to go out and do things. I'm full of hope. Um, you know, it really it makes me feel like I'm on fire in a good way. And uh, and I think that you know that's what his work did. Okay, we've got one last person to hear from. Rima Reynolds was also a student of Mike's, and she stayed extraordinarily close to him even after she left UCLA for Eastern Michigan University, where she's an associate professor of leadership and counseling in the College of Education. That's just one of Rima's many hats, by the way. She's a community organizer and an education consultant, and as she embarked on her own academic journey as a PhD student, Mike gave her one piece of advice that she's never forgotten. He was the same person to so many people. Like, if you just got a little glimpse of him, you know, just a little brush up against, you're forever changed, right? The humanity of him and his ability to connect to your humanity is not often seen in the academy. This competition that we're all a part of, this kind of doggy dog. He, what he did for me, there are a few things. And I never tell anybody this story. I only told him because it, it makes me tear up. But the one thing he did that still really stays with me is he told me, he doesn't tell you, he kind of shows you to relax, right? Like, relax, right? Just write what you want to write, say what you want to say. There'll be an audience for it. Just relax, right? This kind of you know, how do I get my name out there? And, you know, how do I make a splash? Just write, do good work, and relax. Rima came to UCLA after years of working as a practitioner. In her words, she's done everything from lead schools to clean them. But the adjustment to academic life was brutal. And when she ended up in a couple of Mike Rose's writing classes, she didn't know anything about him, except that he had a reputation for being a stickler. You're going to work your ass off, is what Rima remembers hearing. So, when it was time for her to read her work aloud in one of Mike's legendary small group sessions, she was feeling a little, well, on edge. Not just because of who was teaching the course, but who else was in it. 
you know, I went to a regional college. These people are from Harvard and Stanford and Yale and Princeton and, you know, and they're kind of smug, a little bit smug. You know, I like them. They're my friends now. But at the time I was like, these assholes here. Right. And so and I'm also feeling a little short. Right. And so I'm like short academically. So I'm like, ah, what am I going to do? Right. Like, um, so I'm writing and we have to share our work with everybody. He makes you read your work aloud. So I'm reading my work aloud after the, the third class. And he's like, he, he stood up probably with the second paragraph. He stood up and starts walking around the room. I'm like, oh, shit, this isn't going to go well. And he's walking around the room pacing and everyone's kind of like looking at each other. And because he got up, people don't know what's happening. The one little chick is snickering. I'm like, oh, OK, whatever. So I'm just powering through. I'm going to read it. I'm thick skinned. I'll, I'll be able to take it. But kind of thinking I'm not going to be able to take it. <laughs> but afterwards, he said, ah, Rima, you got it. Mike's affirmation meant everything to her. But it was what happened next that really made all the difference, setting in motion a friendship that would last for years. I went up to him after class and I said, um, do you think I belong here? And he said, what do you mean? In my class? I said, no, in the at UCLA, in this program. He was like, what do you, I don't know what you mean. I said, you, do you think I'm smart enough? He said, so one thing I do know is smart. I study it. He said, you're smarter than most people. You you don't need to belong here. You need to own here. He did that for so many people, though. He he affirmed and gave people um, reassurance in small doses. I was just able to have that for a decade and a half. A huge thanks to Rima Reynolds, Janelle Scott, Chris Buttimer, Michael Moses, and Erica Kitzmiller for sharing their stories with us and helping us to pay tribute to Mike Rose. And thanks also to Jack for taking the lead on this episode and doing such a great job. He and I will be right back to talk a little more about Mike. And of course, we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon members. If you can't wait, just head on over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. Well, we actually did an episode with Mike, and in some ways, it so perfectly encapsulates what he was about. We called it the skills gap, and it was really powered by his righteous rage that for students attending community college, their education consists of skills. And so we started talking with him about it, and and then I interviewed him again. But he wanted to make sure that we really heard what was at stake. So he connected us with a woman who he had met because she was his father's home health aide. And so we got to hear what it sounded like when she attended community college, and she'd gone there to be, uh, she was trying to move up in the home health care ranks, you know, get a higher paying job. And then she took an anthropology class. <laughs> and she absolutely, she just fell in love. You could really hear in her story exactly what Mike was so committed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, right? It's that idea of uh, democracy, that all of us matter and that our minds matter and that inquiry matters and that it feels good to know things and that we all have a right to that. And, uh, you know, the first time that Mike reached out to me 
you know, I I didn't think that I was anybody significant enough to reach out to him. Uh, it was in response to an essay that I had written in the Washington Post about what poor kids need in school. Uh, it was called something to that effect, and the argument was, in a nutshell, everything. Right? They need everything that anybody needs. That their education should not be watered down. It should not focus on basics alone. That it should not imagine a world for them that is narrower or smaller than the worlds we imagine and make for our most privileged young people. Um, and, you know, I was basically doing my best impression of him when I wrote that. And so, you know, it was a real honor that uh, he reached out and said that, you know, I had, I had done a pretty good knockoff job there. I can imagine that there are people who are thinking, you know, they did such a good job with this. How can I support the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I bet that is what people were wondering, Jennifer. Well, how could they support the podcast? Well, great news. There's an easy way to support the podcast. <laughs> we get financial support from our listeners through Patreon.com. Thanks very much to all of you who already support us. All you have to do is go to Patreon.com slash Have You Heard Podcast, and you can see all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. For example, you can accompany us into an exclusive area we call In the Weeds. We always talk about interesting things there. For example, today we're going to be talking about the relevance of uh, kind of a famous essay on the paranoid mind um, that Jack has been thinking about. And what I've been thinking about, this sort of sudden interest that Republicans have in empowering parents to basically sue anyone they disagree with and the relevance that this holds for our schools and for public education more broadly. So if any of this interests you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. For those of you who are looking for ways to support the show without having to go back into the Bitcoin mine uh, there are lots of ways to do it. You can give us a rating wherever you've downloaded the show. That helps people find us. It makes the show more visible when they search for it. Uh, you can make sure that you are a subscriber so that every time a new episode is released, you get it. Um, we love hearing uh, that you have shared the show with people, and we can actually see that if you tag the show's handle in any tweets about it. Uh, the handle is at Have You Heard Pod. And of course, Jennifer and I have a book. A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, which is in lots of libraries and probably your local library. Uh, and it would be great if libraries were having trouble keeping it on the shelf if it was in constant circulation. So lots of ways to get involved. Uh, and we look forward to, uh, to those of you who want to join us in the weeds to uh, bringing you into that conversation. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Mike Rose. <laughs> I'm Mike Rose too. <laughs> Thank you.